All right, so we're going to do chapters 11 and 12 in our book today uh, with regard to George Mueller. Um, if you didn't get a handout, there's some on the back table. Do you need one, Tina? Okay. Um, all right. So this first quote here, my faith was tried because of the long delay of larger sums coming. When I went to the scriptures for comfort, my soul was greatly refreshed by Psalm 39. I went cheerfully to meet with my dear fellow laborers for prayer, read them the psalm, and encouraged them with the precious promises contained in it. Would someone be willing to read Psalm 39 for us? I can start with the first few verses and then... All right, let me do... You got it? Go ahead, Bob. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle, while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me, while I was musing the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue, Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth, because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me, because the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. With reproofs, you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I depart and have no more. So, any thoughts on why he might have been encouraged from that psalm in regards to his prayer seemingly not being answered? Sandra? Okay. Yeah, it says, turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again in, in like the sustained outpouring of God's wrath is something he can't handle, so he wants God to turn away his wrath and to remember him. Okay, good. What else? Other reasons why he might find that psalm encouraging given his circumstances. Bob? Five and six, I think, relate particularly to the struggle. Is you've made my days, a lifetime is nothing. So he's feeling like, oh, another hour, another day, it's so hard to wait. And he says, every man is a mere breath. Um, but in the, the, they amass riches and do not uh, know who will gather them. So he knows he needs it, 
but he also, I think in this psalm, reminds him how meaningless it all is. As and far as like gathering money and, yeah. 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 There's an interesting, I don't, it's not in this psalm, but there's another place where it talks about this idea that um, the wicked gather up for the righteous and then God sort of redistributes it to, to accomplish his goals in the world. That's a very loose paraphrase. So. But that's the idea of it. And so I think he has maybe some of that sense as well along the lines of what you were just saying. I need, they have, they've put all this effort into gathering. They don't know why they've done it, but God can stir people's hearts to accomplish this regardless of their motivations and reasons. Um, so how then do we find reassurance when we're wondering about God's help based on this psalm, based on his response to it? What are some of the things that we can do? When we're wondering where God is, when we're wondering if he will help us, what should we do? Okay, yeah. So pray. Pray to God for help. Okay, Mary? Look in the scriptures, right? Uh, what does it say in Romans? These things were written in earlier times are um, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope, right? And so if we say, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, but we don't look at one of the primary sources God has given us to find that hope, we're not helping to relieve that uh, distress or discouragement. What else? Yeah. Okay, many Psalms of David. Right. Yeah, David needed help. Sandra? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, we've talked about this before. That um, I think when it comes to those things, sometimes we... Uh, let me just put it this way. If you're sad, I was talking with some of my 8th grade students a year or so ago, and one of them said, yeah, well, if you're sad, you should just go get some ice cream and then you'll feel better. If you and I use even good things to manipulate our feelings so that we don't work through what God wants us to work through, that's a problem. So if we say, I feel sad, I ate ice cream, I distracted myself from it, now I don't have to worry about it or think about it for a little bit. Or if we say, I feel sad, I'm going to listen to a song, now I feel happy, now I don't have to work through it. There may be legitimate reasons why we're feeling sad or discouraged. Like if it's because I'm sinning, I should feel sad and discouraged about that. If it's because there's been some great loss, I should feel sad and discouraged about that. If I see the evil that goes on in the world, I should feel anger about that. And I should not try to redirect those emotions and manipulate them by whatever might come into our lives. And so, um, whatever we do, we have to make sure that we're doing it with the goal of thinking God's thoughts after Him and feeling God, what God feels after Him and then doing what God does after Him. I mean, obviously with the clear limitations that we're not God, we're restricted in all those ways. But, yeah, because, uh, but, but that can be a really good thing just to to the extent that those things have truths about God, just to pause and reflect 
And sometimes people will put things in a poetic way that sticks in our mind that um, is really good. So, yeah. Sandra. Yeah. 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 I think there might be a few more things, even in addition to that, um, that are not disconnected from what um, they're kind of all connected. So we have the Bible, we have prayer, we can have prayer about the Bible, we can have songs about the Bible, we can have conversations with other people about the Bible. It's like it's all connected but it all comes back to our relationship with God through His Word and, and through prayer and, all those, and through fellowship with other believers. And so, yeah, so those are some of those ways that we find reassurance. When, and, and here's the, the tension, I think. Um, I was just looking at Ephesians chapter 4. Sometimes we think the way to reach spiritual maturity or to be in a right relationship with God is sort of just to accumulate knowledge. And it's interesting because in Ephesians 4, it says, um, speaking the truth in love, you should grow up into all things into Christ who is the head. There has to be a component of interacting with God's truth with one another that leads to spiritual maturity, not just doing things in isolation. And the reason that that's important is because there's this strong streak of individualism that is in America that basically says, secular. If I just put my head down and whatever, I got this on my own. And even in a potentially kind of perspective, it sort of comes to, well, I don't really need the church and I don't need other people because it's me and Jesus and that's good enough. And when we get to that point, we've taken it way too far and that's more like American culture coming out than it is the way the Bible speaks about things coming out. So along those lines, what should with the assurance that God provides, we should probably share it with other people, right? Why doesn't God immediately answer our prayers even for good things? Let's look at that second paragraph. But because he delights in the prayers of his children, he allowed us to pray so long. Our tried faith made the answer much sweeter. I burst into loud praise and thanks the first moment that I was alone. I met with my fellow laborers again this evening for prayer and praise, and their hearts were greatly cheered. This money will easily provide for all that will be needed tomorrow. So why doesn't God immediately answer our prayers even for good things? I mean, it's obvious why God would not answer our prayers for bad things, because he doesn't want us to do bad things, right? Um, God said, if we say to God, God, I want lots of money so I can live however I want, and then I don't think I need you. God's not going to answer a prayer like that. I think we get that. But why does God not answer a prayer for some good thing? at least in this example that he gives. Bob? His goal is always that we better reflect him. Okay. And so, like, like he says, he is honored by more prayers. And there's a song that says, the deeper our sorrow, the louder we sing. Mm -hmm. So he knows our, what our response is going to be by us waiting, whether it's one more day or not. Right. So he's going to direct things 
so that we trust him more, obey him more, and glorify him more. Sure. Yeah. Did someone else have a hand up? Sandra? Yeah, Jonathan? Next little section there. This is only, uh, this is um, a little bit later on in the chapter. He prays and the bill doesn't get paid. He said, This is the only second complete failure of answer to prayer in the ministry during the past four years and six months. I am not fully, con- I am now, I think it should be, I am now fully convinced instead of not, I mistyped that, that the rent should be put aside daily or weekly as God prospers us in order that the work, even in this point, may be a testimony. May the Lord help us to act accordingly, and may he mercifully send in the money to pay the rent. So I think the way that they were doing it before was they weren't setting anything aside day by day. They were just waiting until the day of and trusting that God would provide what they needed for the rent or whatever else that day. And um, so my question would be, was it reasonable to plan as well as pray for provision? Why or why not? Mary? Yeah. It's a good idea to depend on God for rest. Okay. Jonathan? I think it helps us to be responsible stewards. Okay. We see what God is blessing us with daily. We see, okay, what do we need this for? We don't need it immediately, so let's set it aside. Maybe we can set aside for something that we know we're going to need. Sure. I guess a parallel that comes to mind is um, when I was in college, there were a number of people that I knew who would go work at a Christian camp. Some of them would just go volunteer the whole summer and then just sort of expect that God was going to provide enough money to pay their college bill, which could God do that? Absolutely. Did he sometimes? Sure. But in my mind, it seems a little bit presumptuous not to ask God for things when you need them and you have no reasonable way of coming up with them, but if you have a reasonable way of coming up with it by working or whatever else, and you just say, well, but I really feel like I'm going to do this, and maybe don't consider enough before you do whatever the this is, it's not necessarily sin, but I mean, I think we do have to wrestle and ask this question of at what point do we cross the line into testing God? Uh, Think about what... um, Matthew 4, there's this idea of Satan says to Jesus, jump off the temple, God can catch you, which is absolutely true. But we should not be doing things in a way that calls into question God's ability to provide and sort of, not that God's backed into a corner or threatened by us, but give other people the impression, well, uh, like 
you know, I think there was a guy, this prosperity, health and wealth guy, he basically says, if you don't, said, if you don't donate a million dollars to this school that I'm building, I'm going to set myself on fire and kill myself. Just nonsense like that, that clearly is not faith, but is more of like a gimmick or foolishness, right? And uh, it's difficult because there are times when trusting in God to provide for things looks like foolishness. But like Mueller in his book stressed a number of times, there, you need to be absolutely convinced from Scripture and from a bunch of other factors that that is for sure what God wants you to do and not just the first thing that popped into your head. Um, so there's a tension here I think we've got to wrestle through. Anything else on that one? Okay, the next one. When I left the meeting, I ne felt that I needed more exercise, so I walked home a longer way. About 20 yards from my house, I met a brother who walked back with me. He gave me 10 pounds and also gave 5 pounds and another 5 pounds. Had I been one half minute later, I would have missed him, but the Lord knew our need. Uh, the part that I left out, because for sake of space, said this guy had come by his house twice trying to reach him. Mueller decides to take a longer walk, and this guy happens to be going by his house at the time that he's there the third time. Now, obviously I don't think we should read excessively into circumstances, right? Because we can misinterpret them. We can, if, if we say circumstances uh, indicate I should do blank because, and that's disconnected from clear thinking and lots of prayer and what the Bible says in terms of principles, that's a problem. But looking back on it and seeing how God arranges things through things we don't necessarily understand at the time, that, I think, is a different sort of a thing and really fascinating to look at. Why did he decide that he needed more exercise that day? I don't know. He just did. And then this leads to the question of, did God cause him to feel like he needed more exercise that day? Or did God know that he was going to have that thought and arrange it so that the other guy happened to be there at the exact right... We can't really answer that question. It does, right? And so this is an interesting thing when it comes to the subject of God's leading. Um, is the Bible complete? I think we would all say yes. Does God direct his people? Yes. So how do we reconcile those two things? We have to reconcile them in a way that recognizes if the Holy Spirit is working in people's lives and if we are spending lots of time with God in prayer and thinking about his word and trying to do what pleases him, God is going to arrange circumstances and provide opportunities in a way that seems uncanny or unexpected, but should not be viewed as a bad thing and should not be viewed as in competition with also relying on what the Bible says. And this is where I think it's different sometimes. There are people sometimes who will talk about God's leading as though it's independent of what the Bible says. And the point that I'm trying to make, and the point that I think we see borne out in Mueller's life is, when our lives are oriented towards God and we spend lots of time in His Word, we have a better sense of what's pleasing to God. And the more that we try to do what's pleasing to God, and the more that we seek His face in prayer, the more likely it is for all of these things to happen and to work out. Tina. That just tickles my heart when he does that. Yeah? Well, yeah. I mean, you know it was meant to be, you know? Yeah. You get a strong feeling, and it just tickles my heart. Not yours? 
Yeah, and so here's I here, let's springboard off that one more step. Um, I was driving by down uh, 16 mile, and I went by the Leo's Coney Island that I had been in probably once a week when the kids were in school and had gotten to know some of the people in there. And the thought crossed my mind, maybe I should stop in there and say hi to some of those people since I haven't been in there all summer. And so I did that. Um, and there was no like profound you know, like revival breaking out in the, in the Coney Island. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm not trying to exaggerate the importance of that, but I don't think that that was a bad thing to do. As we were leaving, I noticed there was uh, a lady standing out in front of one of the other restaurants, like two doors down in sort of this uh, just longer building. And she looked really sad. And it could be argued it's not my job to talk to her or anything like that. But I kind of had a sense maybe I should stop and talk to her too, but I didn't. So we pulled around and we were going to start going down John R. And then I thought, you know what, um, maybe I should go back and, I don't know, invite her to church or say, can I pray with you about something, something along those lines. I mean, it's the middle of the day. It's not like there's anything inappropriate. I've got my kids with me. It's not like it wouldn't be a bad situation anyway. Um, but I went back and she was gone. And I had sort of this sense of maybe there was an opportunity there that I didn't take. Now, is that something where when I stand before God, he's going to say, you sinned, and I'm going to call you into judgment because you didn't do this thing. I don't, I don't think I would say that. But I do think, my point is just to say, to the extent that we have our eyes open to things around us, there are a lot more opportunities than we realize, and it's easy for us to make excuses of why they're not, and I think that kind of ties into all of what Mueller's talking about here. So, going back to the money question, Let's look at three passages really quick, because he quotes these in connection with something a lady says a little bit later in the chapter, and I just put them in here, and that is whether these passages um, apply to us today in the way that he used them, or, or how we should think about those things. So, uh, 1 Timothy 6.8, someone want to read that for us? 1 Timothy 6.8, Sandra? First uh, Timothy six verse eight. All right, so we can be content with food and covering. I think we'd say that's true, right? Okay, that doesn't seem to be uh, in any way limited by the context to a particular time and place, right? Uh, Luke 11 or 12:33. Someone want to read Luke 12:33 and also 34 if you would, Mary. And the last one's Matthew 6:19 to 20. Uh, Evan, go ahead, Mary.
Okay. That was Luke 11 or 12, 33 and 34. Yeah. So this idea of selling what you have and giving to alms, giving to charity, making yourself money bags, money belts which don't wear out, unfailing treasure in heaven. Let's read the one in Matthew because it's kind of a parallel passage, then we'll talk about both of those together. Matthew 6, 19 to 20, Evan. Yeah, and then verse 21, same kind of idea, the treasure and heart connection. What does that look like? Is the, does the context seem to be limiting that to a particular time and place? Let's think about who's Jesus talking to. Israelites, Jewish people, right? Um, but he's not really stating it in a way that's at all connected or limited to their particular setting. Now, I suppose we could argue that the larger context of that is the, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, all those sorts of things. But I just think it's interesting. Um, there are some things that are clearly tied to things that they could observe. So he said in verse 16, when you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites who do it so people notice them. So we, uh, we pretty easily latch onto that verse. Don't do spiritual things in a way to be seen by other people. But we tend not to pick up verses 19 to 21. What, what would be a reason for not wanting to pick up on this idea of sell what you have and give and don't lay up treasures on earth? Bob? Because we love what we have. Yeah. We have so much. Right. Even if you have struggled in this life in America, and I'm not discounting that you may well have struggled and been in desperate need at points in your life, to my knowledge, none of us have been in the point that some of the people are in. I was talking with someone yesterday, and he was saying that there were, I don't know, like a thousand people that died in some South American country because they didn't have electricity and they didn't have water and it was so hot. That's not really our daily experience, right? Uh, sometimes we might have a power outage and the air conditioning might go off for a while, and we might wonder... Are we going to be miserable? And we might wonder, is our food going to go bad in the fridge or freezer? Which are legitimate concerns. It's not bad to consider those things. But that's a little different than saying, I have nothing at all. Now, there was a, a guy who um, was kind of young and impulsive, and my grandpa talked to him, and he said, I'm just going to sell everything and just sort of like, I don't know, like live in a homeless way, kind of, almost, but not, not, not dependent on other people, just like I shouldn't have any possessions. I don't think that Jesus' point was necessarily you can have nothing at all. Because the disciples, I mean, I'm not trying to be foolish about this, the disciples weren't wandering around naked, right? They had clothes, they had food, but they didn't have like mansions and huge fields and all of those sorts of things. And so uh, 
I forget what I was looking at, but someone was making the point that the disciples were, um, it might have been in this chapter, that the, the disciples that followed around with Jesus were not particularly well off. They were, we don't really think about this. If they weren't fishing, if they weren't tax collecting, if they weren't doing this, that, and the other, where was their food coming from? Tina? But we never see any record of them working. Do we? No, 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 not Paul, the disciples like Matthew, Mark, Luke. Oh, oh. Or Matthew, Mark, John, all of them. Oh, no, no. But he ran into people that were Christians. Yeah. So we have the example of Paul who, when he ran out of money, did tent making to provide for himself. Absolutely. So that's a good point. But the disciples who are wandering with Jesus. So here's, here's the bottom line I don't think, in the broader context of Scripture, that this is saying you can have no possessions at all. Here's what I think it should make us think about, and this is, I've really been thinking about this a lot lately because I have too much stuff. We easily become attached to objects and spend a lot of our lives organizing them, moving them around, all of those sorts of things, time that could be spent much better in ministry, money that could be spent much better in some other way. Now, I'm not saying you can't have a couch or a chair that you like or a kitchen table or something in your kitchen, whatever. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying to the extent that we see the accumulation of stuff as the goal of life and as a good feature of our society and as the be-all and end-all of a full and happy life, that's a problem. And I think a passage like this should make us stop and say, we really easily fall into that attitude. And again, I'm acknowledging to you, I have too much stuff and it becomes a burden in the time that it consumes and in the fact that if your house is full of stuff, you have less room in your house for people and for things designed to minister to people um, than you know, just all of the things that accumulates. Again. I'm getting kind of off of the point that he's making, and here's the point that I think he's making. That there were people who had the attitude of, here are these passages in Scripture, and I've wrestled with them, and my conclusion is, I have more than I need, so I'm going to share. And that very much lines up with 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and these passages in Matthew and Luke, and the attitude in 1 Timothy 6 about don't strive to be rich, and the thing in Proverbs 30 where it says, God, don't give me so much, I think I don't need you, and so little that I'm tempted to steal. And so in our attitude about money, my point is just to say, let's make sure that our approach to these things is driven by scriptural principle more than is driven by, well, that's just what everybody else around us in society does. And going back to the previous point, can we plan for the future? Yes, but we also don't have to fear the future and say, well, if I don't have $20 million saved up for down the road, how can I possibly live? I'm using an extravagant number because that's not where any of us are at. If I don't have a million dollars saved up for down the road by the time I get to retirement, how can I possibly live? And again, 
I'm not, I'm not ripping on Bob because I understand you, you advise people about those things. But um, there is a degree when we have to wrestle with the question of if we have wisely prepared for the future and taken steps to prepare for our families in the event that something horrific or unexpected happens, we should feel some sense of freedom to minister to other people. And uh, what that looks like is not something that I'm going to try to bind your conscience about. It's something that I've been wrestling with, what that looks like for me. You have to wrestle with what that looks like for you. Tina? You're saying have a garage sale? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's obviously all the COVID stuff made people pretty wary about those for a while. But yeah, not it, yeah, not anymore. All right, let's keep moving. Um, a little bit later, he says, a solemn day. I received word my brother died on October 7th. He doesn't get word until mid-December. And that's just the nature of communication in that day. His response, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? May the Lord make this even a lasting blessing to me especially in leading me to earnest prayer for my father. So how should the death of a loved one impact our continuing trust in and prayer to God? Am I ready to meet God? Good, what else? Okay. Yeah. Continue to trust God's promises and provision. Okay. Well. I think uh, a sense of urgency. If his brother wasn't a believer, becomes a stark reminder that time is fleeting, in particular for the lost. And if he was a believer, he rejoices and remembers that, you know what, have I done enough that I'm ready to yeah. stand before God? Okay, Evan, same kind of idea, but go ahead. Yeah, so a sense of urgency. Um, his father is, I think he says in the chapter, I don't know if my brother knew God. And I think he says a little bit later, my father dies when his father dies. It's possible that he trusted God, but I have no confidence of it. But... His brother's death spurred him on to say, I'm going to minister more to my father. And so, at least those three things, right? Sense of urgency for the lost, a sense of am I ready myself, and um, a sense of continuing trust in God despite the grief or loss. And I think all those things are good examples that we see here. A little bit later, he says, oh, this is the thing I was looking for a moment ago. The Lord spoke these words, Mark 14, 7, to his disciples who were very poor, implying that the children of God have power with God to bring temporal blessings along poor saint, upon poor saints or poor unbelievers through prayer. Uh, he says in uh, Mark 14, 7, For you always have the poor with you, and wh whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. We have, well, I don't know we, a fair number of people have tended to take that verse and say, well, poverty is a problem that can't be solved, so why should we get hung up on it? We should do this instead. Jesus' point was, interestingly enough, not necessarily that. It was, you have the power to continue to do good to the poor. You have a narrow window in which you can do good to me. So he wasn't saying, 
because the focus should have been on Jesus, we should forget about the poor. And so Mueller's point is, God laid it on his heart. He felt that even though we don't have a lot, there's a lot of people who are really struggling. How can we minister to them? And if you come to 2 Corinthians 8, the beginning of 2 Corinthians 8, it says, out of their deep poverty, the, the believers in Macedonia gave abundantly for the poor in Jerusalem. So this is something where I think sometimes we tend to feel like, unless I have a lot, I can't share. And the irony to me has been, sometimes the people that I know that have the least can be the most generous because they know what it's like to not have what they need. Whereas if you have, for the most part, been in a spot where you've not been in desperate need, it's really easy instead of saying, and I should then minister to other people to say, and then I should hang on to what I have because I never want to get there. Sandra? Yes, sir. Um, I struggle. Okay. Okay. Okay, so the two things for those of you who can't hear for it because of the air conditioner. Um, first one is how do we give in such a way that upholds the principle of give in a way that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing? Or maybe it's the opposite, but that kind of idea. Um, and then how do we find a balance between giving to believers in need first and then to unbelievers or the poor in general? Those two things. So in answer to the first, the principle, I think, when it says let, don't let the one hand know what the other is giving is not everything has to be anonymous, but rather don't do it to be seen by other people. Because I think there's sometimes a... Sometimes just practically, you don't have a way to get something to someone in need unless you just go take it to that person. And then they obviously know who it came from. Um, so I don't think that precludes us saying, so-and-so needs groceries. Well, I can't give them groceries because then they'll know it's for me and then that would be pride. It's not pride unless you go in saying, hey, I just want you to know, I came and brought you groceries and you should be grateful. Like That kind of attitude would be wrong. Or if you do it and then you go and tell a whole bunch of other people, hey, just so you know, last week I gave so-and-so groceries, be expecting some sort of pack, pat on the back. That's, I think, what the passage is arguing against. Uh, when it comes to the other question of a priority of for believers or for other places, um, or for other people, rather, uh, there's probably more passages that should be coming to mind. I, I guess I would start with this. We have finite resources, which means we can't give everything to everybody. So I've had family members who have struggled with the police association and the firemen's association and this political candidate and that political candidate. Everybody's asking for money. You give to any one of them and then everybody else that they know starts asking you for money. I think that we should be hesitant to start with giving to causes that aren't specifically Christian just because there's so many unbelievers who can give to those causes already. I guess a parallel would be um, 
people say, well, why do you have all this, people who are in favor of abortion will say, well, why all this push for crisis pregnancy centers? Well, because nobody else really cares about people in that situation. They'll say, well, why don't you do adoption and blah, 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 blah. It's not like nobody wants to do that too, but there's something specifically Christian or at least specifically valuing life about a crisis pregnancy center that is in contrast to where a lot of money is going in, in the world generally. Um, so not starting with giving to political candidates and all those sorts of things, those secular causes, even though they may be good, but starting with, in my mind, starting with ministries that are local and ministries that are most closely connected with the gospel and all those sorts of things, I think, seems to be based on a bunch of passages, which I, I, I don't have all of them to give you chapter and verse at the moment. But as I read the New Testament, here's what I see the early church doing. Here's a fellow believer in need. I'm going to help that fellow believer. At the same time, there was a very strong sense in the Jewish community that they should give to help the poor, which ironically in their day was basically poor Jewish people, right? Because that's who's around them for the most part. So that's where it gets tricky because when you have a location that's predominantly one ethnicity, giving to the poor and giving to fellow people in your same group were not necessarily two different things. Now, were there also Romans and Samaritans and them? Yes, but I don't think a lot of them necessarily had that in mind. Maybe they should have. Uh, I do think that we start with things that are most closely connected with the gospel. So. If, if, you had, if you said, I have $100, I could give it to missions, I could give it to my city for improvement on the roads, I could give it to my friend to go on a trip for like a vacation. I think we would want to start with why we're not giving it to missions, but there might be a case where we do something with that to minister to our friend and then the thing about like helping out the municipality would be like a lot further down the list. We don't have time to, I talked too much on that. We got a couple more things. We don't have time to kind of finish that out. Hopefully that kind of starts to answer your question, Sandra, and we could certainly talk more about that later. A little bit later, he says, a poor brother with a large family and small wages saved the money given to him by his boss for beer. This brother, who was converted about five years ago, used to be a notorious drunkard. When the money accumulated to one pound, he donated it to the orphans. So here's my question. How does God transform us from grasping to giving? I think we see this in Ephesians 4 and 5, but what do we see here? How does God transform us from grasping to giving based on this example? Huh? Our focus goes from feeding ourselves to feeding others, in a sense. Yeah? What else? When, uh, let's build on that feeding ourselves what was his boss specifically giving him the money for for beer and more particularly for basically for him to go out and get drunk now God had saved him and he realized that drunkenness was a sin and so instead of pursuing that now he's saying if I don't do this thing that's sinful what can I then do with the money that's good for God I think that's the right attitude to have okay um, Last paragraph. I finally decided that whatever my body might suffer, I would no longer let the most precious part of the day pass away while I was in bed. In addition, I gave up sleeping after dinner. I want to encourage all believers to get in the habit of rising early to meet God. If we sleep more than is necessary for the refreshment of the body, it is wasting the time the Lord's entrusted us to be used for His glory, for our own benefit, and for the benefit of the saints around us. 
Anyone who spends one, two, or three hours in prayer and meditation before breakfast will soon discover the beneficial effect early rising has on the outward and inward man. So, should we start the day with Bible meditation and prayer? I don't think anyone would argue and say that we shouldn't, right? How much? Here's the point that was really interesting to me. We tend to think of Bible meditation and prayer in terms of minutes, not in terms of hours. And this is something that I struggle with too. Not that I don't pray or read the Bible regularly throughout the day, but to say I'm going to set aside an hour to do it or two hours to do it before anything else happens in the day goes against the grain of, as he's pointing, sleep, the idea that we should spend our time on ourselves, the idea that we have all these responsibilities pressing in on us. Um, and so here's the question I want to leave you with. Not to answer, just to think about. If you've never prayed for more than an hour, why not? We'll just stop there, and uh, that's something to consider. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these uh, passages from Scripture and examples from history. Pray that we would recognize not every last thing that was done is necessarily what we need to do, but the attitude of dependence on you, of unselfishness, of generosity, of not loving the things of this world more than we love the people around us, and of prioritizing our time with you are all really important things that we should strive to uh, consider more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.